Today we're joined by Deacon Steve Hodson, who is stationed at St. Francis of Assisi Church in Weston and is heading up the diocesan efforts for the Synod on Synodality. He joins Bishop Caggiano to give us all an update on what's happening with the Synod on Synodality and where we're headed next in the process. Keep your radio right here at 1350 AM or 103.9 FM, or keep listening on the Veritas mobile app on your phone. You can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. We are here in the season of giving thanks, and Foundations in Faith is asking you to remember two critical ministries on Giving Tuesday. The first is the St. Francis Xavier Fund for Missionary Parishes, which supports vibrant inner-city parishes facing financial challenges. For example, many of those parishes have old boilers that break down. The St. Francis Xavier Fund is there to provide new boilers and to keep the heat on in these inner-city parishes. The second ministry is Foundations and Charities Mental Health Matters Campaign, which supports mental health services provided by Catholic Charities of Fairfield County. As you know, the need for mental health services is truly great. Please help them and your fellow brothers and sisters in need during this holiday season. To help, go to bridgeportdiocese.org and click on the Giving Tuesday link, or keep an eye out for an email from Bishop Caggiano with a link for your support. Thank you for helping Foundations in Faith and Foundations in Charity provide essential services to the more vulnerable people and parishes right here in our community. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's good to see you, my friend. Post-USCCB meeting. Yeah, right? yes. How was it? Oh, it was actually, it was very fruitful. A lot of things got done. Um, to be honest, the, the, I was there for eight days because I had the Institute launch and the catechism before the USCCB started. Yes. So it was a very long time. Right. The Institute launch was a moment of tremendous grace. Tremendous. And fits we'll into to our topic. Yeah. It'll, well, it'll fit into the topic we're going to talk about today. Okay. And any, any good nuggets that uh, you'd like to share from uh, the week at the USCCB? No, I think there was it was a good the, the they rearranged things, different tables, different seating arrangements. There was fraternal dialogues. There was an attempt to get the bishops to talk with one another, which which is a good thing. That came out of the June meeting where bishops basically responding to the fact that the the meetings were very um business oriented and scripted. They wanted more opportunity to to dialogue amongst themselves. Oh, mm -hmm. good. Good. Yeah. No St. Nicholas moments where uh, somebody punched another person. No, no, no. Everybody was very civil. <laughs> Calm, civil. Yes, very of good. course. And actually, not, not too good. many disagreements. Yeah, not too many. Anyway. Okay. So okay. who's our guest? So Tell us. We have somebody very special here today, Excellency. Uh, we have joining us today Deacon Steve Hodson. Deacon Hodson is the president of Hodson Realty, and he is a permanent deacon here in the Diocese of Bridgeport, stationed now at St. Francis of Assisi in Weston. Deacon grew up here in Connecticut, attended Holy Name of Jesus, and has been involved in music ministry for many, many years. And he completed his diaconate studies at St. Joseph Seminary College on June 15th, 2019. 
Deacon Hodson is also spearheading the diocesan efforts with the Synod on Synodality. And uh, uh, he's uh, married to uh, his lovely wife, Susan, with four kids and five grand- grandkids. So Great. Deacon Hodson, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you, Steve. Hi, Bishop. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's a, I'm delighted. Steve, are you a Stratford kid then? Did you grow up in Stratford? I did. I grew up in the Holy Name area, went to Holy Name School, and uh, Andy, my former pastor at St. Luke, lived right around the corner, Andy Varga, Monsignor oh, Varga. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. So, so he was older, I take it. He was a bit older, but um, yeah, we did know each other's family, and uh, we basically lived a mile from each other, which was great when he you know, asked me, you asked me to go to St. Luke, it, it ended up being the best thing ever, best decision ever. I appreciate it. Yeah, and the fact that you were there when when Monsignor fell ill and then eventually died was a great blessing to him, right? Tremendous. I hope so. He was a blessing to all of us, and uh, yeah, very very endeared, endeared, and he very patient with me, which is great. Yeah, uh, well, everybody's patient with me, so it's just part of the course. You you take uh-huh. it as it is, right? Uh, I, before we get into the synod, um, I'm going to ask for you, to the extent that you're comfortable to tell us your faith journey, right? Oh, boy. That'll be a long story. I mean, God has been very good to me. I I do recall at my confirmation at Holy Name, dressed in a red robe, and when the bishop put the oil in his hands over me, I didn't sense any change. But when I went back after communion, I remember singing and feeling like tongue of fire, not knowing, had no clue what that was. And then years (laughs) later, I said, well, that's what they talk about when the apostles say that, you know, the Holy Spirit descended like a tongue of fire and uh, received all my sacraments at Holy Name, um, went to a public high school, then started going south. I went to University of Connecticut and I was always, you know, sometimes stop into the chapel. Not always. I kind of got off track with my faith. But after graduation, I think my mom, like St. Monica, prayed a lot for me and um through the, my love of music, I got involved with music ministry at Holy Name, was involved in a beautiful production, Touch and Live, with Father Ed McCauley and Deacon Tim Bolton at St. James, which is all about the healing ministry of Christ. And then, uh, you know, applied to the diaconate when I was 29, but we were expecting our first son. And I think I jaded myself in the process um, and, you know, was not accepted. And 30 years later, somehow along the lines, God, you know, sort of seemed to ask me again. And I'm like, I'm too old. And so we had the wonderful formation in Bridgeport for maybe a year and a half. And Bishop Frank suggested we'd go to Yonkers St. Joseph Seminary College. And I was like, I don't know, my wife, I'm too old for this. And so I fish a lot at our lake and I always catch small, largemouth bass. So one Sunday afternoon, I'm fishing two hours, no fish. And so in humility, I said, Lord, I need a fish. If you want me to go to Yonkers for three and a half years. As soon as I cast, I caught a fish. It flipped off on shore, and I'm thinking, I'm going to flunk out, or I might sin out. But by the grace of God, it was a wonderful three and a half years with uh, five other gentlemen, and the education was was wonderful, and the priests, our educators, were holy people with a heavy degree of love for us. And I'm grateful to this day because I'll never have that kind of focused learning Again, because now that you're in ministry, it's even hard to get through a book or two, as Bishop Frank will tell you. Mm-hmm. So I'm very grateful to God for allowing me to have some changes in, in how God works through me. And 
my joys briefly are reading the scripture it comes alive for me and also you know baptizing uh, baptizing young children and working with some of the younger population thank great. you great great excellent excellent and isn't it funny how god nags does a sacred nagging so they ask and then you you know you and i would say okay so this door is closed but he doesn't leave he kind of like keeps instilling what his real desire is so when you were 29 the door was closed because i guess of policy right you have to be 35 now, when you're I, think I, I was old enough but i think it's the fact that we are expecting our first child and God didn't see that as being the appropriate time. Got so it. four, four Got children it. later, the time was right. I like to say, Coach Jeremiah, Jeremiah say, you, you dupe me, oh Lord. And right. I let myself be duped. Right, 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 right. right. In, all, in, in all humor. Right, exactly. Now, let's go back to the Institute, which is a segue to what you're going to be talking about in just a second. And that is the Synod. Two things happened down in Baltimore. The first was at the Institute. It was two and a half days of what I'm going to say was more of a retreat-like experience that brought 103 people together, 15 bishops, 47 diocesan staff, the rest publishing staff, in a conversation, a collaboration, a dialogue, a listening of what are the, what are the issues we're facing in catechesis? And what's the vision the Holy Father is asking us to live? And what implications could that have as a first step? Because the Institute is a dialogue. It's a collaboration. It's not a place. Right? And it was quite brutally honest, for one. And you could tell from the body language that as the time went on, people became more comfortable saying what was on their heart, what the Lord was saying, what was 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 really prompting them to consider, as well as listening more intently. You know, when a person listens, sometimes, you know, they're giving you kind of like the, not really the time of day. And then when they're listening intently, you could tell, right? You know the difference. And you could see the listening became deeper. And it was, as I said, it was an excellent experience. And a bishop afterwards reflected at one of the committee meetings, he said, that is an example of the synodal church, right? Where there's true listening and dialoguing and you see people change, right? It's not so much what you are talking about is changing because that's not the issue. It's the people themselves are changing by the process. So I thought it was quite interesting. The other is Bishop Flores gave the, the uh, update to the whole conference and it was televised. So you may have seen it, our listeners may have seen it. But as we move to the continental phase now, uh, there are going to be five of those gatherings, three in English, one in French, and I believe one in Spanish for Canada and the United States. And you can sp speak more about that, Steve. The interesting thing I found was it is an observation that Cardinal Tobin made because the other continental dialogue, so Europe, Asia, Africa, Central South America, Oceania, their gatherings are in person, all of them. Ours is by Zoom. Ours is not in person, which I thought was quite interesting. And I'm not exactly sure why that decision was made here in North America, 
but um, it just struck me, right? That either we're intuiting something different that's important, or we may have missed something that other places did not miss. But anyway, and that occurs now, right through the end of the year into January. Okay, so Steve, if no one ever heard of this synod on synodality, sounds like a disease, right? Mm -hmm. What 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 is it? Tell it. Give it to us in one hundred and one. What is it? <laughs> it's our collective journey of faith. It's kind of akin. I was mentioning to Steve to, you know, walking the road to Emmaus, or actually walking the road towards our salvation. And it's it is a confusing terminology, but I think what's envisioned is that the fundamental goal is for us to be in communion with each other. And as you suggested, that can happen primarily with one-on-one -on -one discussions. And it's really important for us to listen to people, and I'm terrible at it. But what I've learned from this exercise is that when people know that you'll listen without debating, without arguing or contesting, then the courage from the Holy Spirit will come forward, and they will trust, and they'll speak what's on their heart. And I know Bishop Frank gave a lot of latitude or freedom as to how each parish decided to conduct their sessions. Some may have done a town hall style meeting. Many did small group gatherings, whether they be live or in Zoom. And quite honestly, the Zoom, the Zoom gatherings were as engaging as the live gatherings. And others, and especially uh, Bishop Frank had empowered the Diocesan Pastoral Council to try to have as many one-on-one -on -one conversations which can be the most intimate because certainly when you're face to face with somebody, they don't have to worry about what other people at a table or in a, in a hall hear. So they will speak more openly and more courageously. So within our diocese, we had uh, probably a 1700 participants, about 90 live sessions. Um, many of the schools were engaged with letter writing, uh, a handful of parishes, maybe we had about 200, 90 responses through drop boxes or surveys. Um, some parishes did in, in pew questionnaires. Steve, you had asked about that, where there was certain question posed. But the way we tried to position it with the delegates in the beginning would be ask as open-ended a question as you can, because you want to hear what's on people's hearts. And if I had a question, and some parishes chose to be more specific, so they would ask about your opinion as to you know, the Latin Mass versus the Vatican II. They would ask maybe an opinion about the Eucharist or different specific things, which would already bring a level of um, specificity to the speaker, where if you're asked a question, you're responding to the question. But many try to keep it open-ended. Like if you had something that you wanted to say to the hierarchy of the church or to Pope Francis, what would it be? So if what on my heart, if something on my heart had to do with maybe I'm struggling with um, marriage. I'm struggling with marriage or I'm recently divorced and I'm struggling with feeling accepted. Or if, if I'm a minority or part of a, a community that's not felt to be readily accepted in the parish, I would want to speak on what, with what was on my heart. So it elicited a broad, broad range of responses. Many consolations, uh, many people are wounded. And through those relationships, then the people that participated can deepen those relationships beyond this initial um, listening session and learn a little bit more about, you know, why is the person the way they are? If they have a strong opinion one way or the other, 
what went into that opinion over the course of their life to bring them to that point in time. So it was a wonderful opportunity to engage with people. And through the engagement, what we found is many ministries are developing from that. Um, I'll tell a brief story about uh, a woman who came up to me after one of the masses and she had participated in a Zoom session. And she says, you know, I really feel badly that I, I don't have a more active role as a woman in the church. And, you know, I told her a story about bringing communion to a neighbor who had had a stroke and how through the Eucharistic ministry, able to read scripture to her and bring Christ to her in the Eucharist. And that that was a part of my priestly ministry as a baptized Catholic. And there's so many people through COVID that can't get to mass and would love for more people to bring Jesus to them. And so in, a, in effect, she started to do that and, and she was exercising a lot of her priestly roles that although she's not ordained, she's able to do a lot of what a priest would do other than the consecration. So it was very, very beautiful um, how it engaged people. Um, some people had told stories about their conversion and a big part of the synod was to tell stories about how God had worked in their life. And this is a great story. Uh, one gentleman from the parish I was serving at St. Luke, uh, and he will let me share this. His name was Tim. And Tim was probably in his late 70s, and he's a reader. And so one morning he read at the early mass, and he reads with a lot of diction, very, you know, very clear in how he reads. And come to find out that when Tim was a youth, he had suffered from a speech impediment. And he was, you know, kind of shy because of his impediment. And he had gone to Fordham University. And one of the teachers said, Tim, why don't you take my public speaking class? And Tim said, well, Father, I, I, have, a, I have a speech impediment. I stutter. He says, well, you should maybe try it. So he came to class. And before class started, you know, Tim got up, uh, the professor called him up and introduced him and said, class, we have to be patient because Tim stutters. Well, for Tim, that was a cathartic moment because he overcame his speech impediment. And now he is a lector at church. And that's one of the reasons he reads so clearly with such good diction. And I had been at the parish for a year and a half and I had known him by face, but I didn't know him by name. I didn't know him in person at all. And through this live listening, or I'm sorry, it was a Zoom listening session, I came to know Tim and I knew his part of his story, which just brought so much joy to me. And so being able to share stories with each other about our faith and also about our, our wounds uh, is a wonderful thing. And what it does is it allows for us to be in communion, to start to participate more in our faith with other people, support each other in our downtimes and share in the joys. You know, St. Paul gives the analogy of the body of Christ. When one of us is hurting, we all suffer. When one of us is joyful, we all share in the joy. And I think that's one of the best byproducts that's come out of these mm -hmm. sessions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. Um, as you describe it, it almost... Uh, it, it almost could be defined, the synod, as an exercise in communion, 
meaning yes. that the unity of the church is meant to be strengthened precisely because of the bonds that are created by the listening and the exchange, right? Absolutely. Is that fair? Right? That's how it works. You, you know, we, we can only be in relationship with people pretty much one-on-one. One on one. Uh, it gets a little complex when you add more people to it. So the more we know people on a one-to-one -one basis, mm -hmm. the more we can walk the journey together. Mm -hmm. You know, in the Eucharistic revival, Bishop Cousins made a presentation to the bishops, and he mentioned that in the parish phase, the emphasis is going to be on small faith communities. Now, that echoes what I heard in Washington at the St. Paul Evangelization Society when they spoke about evangelizing the church and the communities of the church, they emphasized the same thing, that it's small faith communities. Then when you look at the ecclesial movements like the neocatechumenal way, it's all about small faith communities. So in a sense, there are a number of people who look at the synod on synodality with great suspicion, which we're going to get to in a session, in a, in a second. But one of the byproducts of the, the actual dynamic is to build one-on-one -on -one relationships, strengthening the bonds between us, and creating communities that will, that will walk with each other in the journey of faith, right? That didn't maybe exist before. If they did exist, we're not as deeply bonded as they are now coming out of this. So no matter what else a person may be thinking, that is a tremendous good for the church because the greater the communion, the stronger the church. The stronger the church, the more unified it speaks. It's counterintuitive because the criticism I've heard in our diocese and in other places is building on what happened in Germany or fearful of what happened in Germany, people will say the synod of synodality is giving voice to people who are not active in the church precisely to change what the church teaches, right? And they will point to the national document on the synod. The, I forget what it's called. This, the, and, uh, no, no, the, the, the national statement that just came out a few weeks ago. And it mm -hmm. is, it, it is re revelatory, revelatory that the word evangelization does not appear once in the whole document. Not once. Hmm. So they point to that and say, so what is this in the end? Is it the squeaky wheel getting all the oil? That those who feel marginalized or don't agree with the church, we're giving them voice that they'll change. No, and the answer, again, I'm going to answer the, the objection. The answer is that is not what's going on at all. Because it's not about the substance of faith. It's not about you know, let's decide what we want to believe. That, that's not what's here at all. It's about, it's about strengthening the communion so that in effect, we can better accept and believe and embrace what the church teaches. Now, Steve, is that a fair characterization from your point of view? Yeah, I think on both counts. One, you know, the interpersonal communion leads to small group community. Uh, another story was one woman at church was upset because... You know, there was a vibrant men's scriptural group. Well, after the synod, she got together and formed a vibrant women's scriptural group. Oh, yes, so, I heard about that. Yes, I heard about that. Yes. Which is which is very dynamic. It's it's incredible. Uh, and yeah, and a lot of people, I think, you know, in our parish, you know, maybe we had 50% participation from 
the parishes in our diocese. And I think there's multiple reasons. Um, again, you know, there, there's a lot of times I think pastors feel uh, overburdened by a lot of things, although this would have been a, a delegating the function to, you know, four delegates at, at a minimum. Uh, but yeah, some people feel that, you know, this is going to cause, a, uh, you know, an upheaval in, in our church teaching, which is not the case. You know, the outcome, it, it says in some of the documents, the outcome is not predetermined. So again, but I think it does uh, cause the hierarchy to listen, because this is the largest undertaking in the history of the church in an attempt to listen to the people of God. And mm -hmm. through that listening, we, we've heard, you know, I've heard majority opinions. I've heard a lot of minority opinions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes when you have minority opinions and we listen to them without prejudging, we, we do think and, and pray over what's being said, you know, because sometimes with good dialogue, we will come up with ideas that we may, may have not thought of before, correct? And there may be improvements based on right. having dissenting opinions. Right. In the end, again, so that everyone understands the dynamic of what's going on here, St. Vincent of Lerins speaks about the development of doctrine, and he draws the analogy of a little boy, a teenager, and a young man, and an old man. He draws the image that it's the same person, but there's a development. You don't become a different person. You fully develop. It's the same thing happening here. So the voices of dissent that are being listened to are not being listened to because they are going to bring a truth from outside the deposit of faith and say, suddenly we believe this. What they are is illustrating something within the deposit of faith that perhaps we have not articulated well, we could articulate better, we could articulate new ways in the 21st century. It's like looking deeper and deeper into a pond to see the breadth and depth of it. So I think... There is, there is a need to help people to understand that the synod on synodality that Pope Francis is asking us to undergo is not the equivalent of what the Germans are calling a synod. They are different realities. And it's unfortunate that the German church did what it did in anticipation of the synod on synodality because it caused a lot of good people to take a step back and perhaps not even participate, Deacon Steve, precisely because mm -hmm. they're saying, is this what we're doing when in fact this is not what we were doing and never was designed to do what they're doing and i'm not exactly sure why they even designed that to do what it was doing but that's a whole other question which after the break maybe we could talk about some more yep so let me jump in quickly uh we'll just take a quick break here this is let me be frank on the veritas catholic network his excellency is speaking with deacon steve hodson about the synod on synodality which is now moving to the continental phase um Deacon Steve is here to tell us about what's happening, what's been happening, and where we're going. We'll continue this conversation if on the other side of the break. We'll be about right your back. End of life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County. Now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option five to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people 
people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency has a guest here today. It's Deacon Steve Hodson talking about the Synod on Synodality. Excellency, you were making a clear distinction between the German Synodal Way and the International Synod on Synodality Absolutely. before we came Absolutely. to the break. Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, th- this is my personal opinion, so you could take it for what it's worth. Um, accommodation, accommodation does not increase participation. It never has. And anybody who understands the history of the church, I could give you a hundred examples of how that has been proven over and over again. What I mean by accommodation is you say to a body of people, you know what? If you don't like X, let's talk about X because we could change X and then you'll be committed to the church. It doesn't work that way. The reason is, is because the entire synod on synodality is an exercise in communion with our relationship with each other in the person of Jesus Christ. It's to deepen the relationship we have with the Lord in and through the church, which we do with one another. So the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Holy Scripture says that. So it's not a question of saying, I don't like this, so let's talk about it and change it. And and, and if there are people who had that impression and didn't participate, I would invite them to, to participate in the synodal process, particularly when we have our next diocesan synod. More to come about that in the coming years because we're eight years past ours and a good rule of thumb is always to have one every 10 or 12 years because look how the world changed in 10 years. My goodness, just look how much has changed. (laughs) And that we as a diocese come together like we did eight years ago and sit and listen and raise issues and and make a, a, a... a set of resolutions that we live by to strengthen the community of the church and our, the evangelization of the gospel and our common life. So it's, and that's no different than what Pope Francis is asking us to do. I, I just, you know, I, I must confess, as I said, I'm not exactly sure why the Germans did what they did. I have no idea what's going to be at the end. I do know that as we speak and taping today, the German bishops are at their ad limiter visit with the Holy Father in Rome. I would love to be a fly on that wall to <laughs> see what's being said, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, so going back to the process. So we did the uh, diocesan, then we did national. Now, Deacon Steve, talk to us about continental. What's going on there? 
So there'll be more listening sessions with the U.S. and Canada. And as you mentioned, some will be in English and some will be in a couple different languages. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess the Eastern, each Eastern Church has already submitted their uh, summary directly to the Holy See. Um, so it'll be more of dialogue and listening, trying to assimilate all these different summary reports. At least in this case, it'll actually be the USCCB report, which is already compiled and released. Uh, and dialogue with Canada to try to, again, come to a consensus as to what to submit um, to Pope Francis. So that'll be taking place over the course of the next few months, I believe. And uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what it is, is it's continuing the process. Mm -hmm. um, who goes? Who does those? There are five listening sessions. Who goes to those listening sessions? So I guess we're, you know, we're to select... Um, three to five people from our diocese to participate. And we've selected some people from our diocese trying to get a, uh, a variety of, of people mm -hmm. of who have participated as delegates in our diocesan synod. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to get a broad spectrum of people who want to participate in that. Um, and certainly some of these people have, they've all participated in their local parish, but some of them that we've selected have also participated in workshops that we held at our diocese. So before uh, this compilation for Bridgeport got put together, uh, we held a retreat in Darien at St. Brigida with some delegates from around our, our parish to help me compile this report right. in an orderly manner and in a prayerful manner. So we are giving credence to both mm -hmm. majority opinion and opinions mm -hmm. that may be minority. Mm -hmm. um, not as mm -hmm. predominant. So everybody's voice is reflected, I think, right. in our diocesan report. Right, right, which will then officially be issued in the next probably ten days. Um, That's now awesome. that we yeah, yeah. Now that we have the diocesan, see for everyone's knowledge. So the process that Deacon Steve has led, you know, so well, has its own dynamic, and I've asked the diocesan pastoral council to be. Um, to be involved in the process, not having been involved in the steps. In other words, as almost like a second court of instance that would receive the information almost objectively and be able to go through a discernment process to say, having read everything and seen it. And so this is where I think the priorities lie. So the spirit's working, please God through them, because then the delegates are going to come together again at the end of March to hear what the pastoral council has discerned to go through their own discernment to see if there's a convergence, if we all land in the same place. And that's kind of like discernment experience always needs to have some confirmation, right? That we don't kind of live in our own heads. So that's really what's going on in our diocese. And quite frankly, the goal would be for our purposes to identify the two or three priorities that we can do something about as a diocese, right? Because in the end, while, while we do this global process, it, uh, you know, it's like all politics and religion starts at home. So some of the fruit of everything you've done is to try to say, okay, so these are some, some tasks we could put our hands to, all right, in response to everything we've listened, right? And a lot of his press, it, I think, I think, um, I think I would be proven correct here. It's pastoral practice, it's how, it's how we live and how we do things and how we attend to things and how we can reapply ourselves, whether it's in the celebration of the mass 
or in the preaching of homilies or being intentional about welcoming people to their parishes. I mean, those are the things that are the lifeblood of the church that many times we don't spend enough time being intentionally excellent at doing it. Right? Is that yes. fair, Steve? Yes. You know, and through COVID, we, we lost a lot of that uh, welcoming aspect that had been in the church for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest themes, both locally and nationally, was we need to become a welcoming church. And, you know, that boils down to, to learning of our constituents, learning of our parishioners as to what are the gifts and talents the Holy Spirit has blessed each person with. So, you know, just as an example for, you know, Monsignor Andy's funeral, there are people coming from out of state. And some people were walking in all by themselves. So we had engaged the people that were socially good at greeting people to be mm -hmm. there 30 mm -hmm. minutes before mass, 30 minutes after mass, besides answering logistical questions and welcoming. Welcome to St. Luke. How did you know Monsignor? And you'd have somebody from Maine who, had they not had that encounter, would have walked into the church, walked out of the church with no human reaction interaction and it was so beautiful you know we we grew up here we lived here for 30 years monsignor married us he baptized our four children you know he was here for the confirmation of our kids and he married our son and daughter that one encounter is just worth its weight in gold and every sunday people walk in and we've we've been we've been the beneficiary of a lot of people moving to connecticut during covid from you know mm -hmm. the boroughs mm -hmm. new york city mm -hmm. new jersey mm -hmm. They come to, they shop parishes. Now, I'm happy if they land at any one of our churches. But when they come, if, if there are people that are gifted socially to communicate with people, having conversations before and after, next thing you know, they join the parish. They say, well, you know, we have young kids. I don't know how much we can get involved. Well, let's, you know, do you desire to have your children baptized? Yes, we do. Okay, well, here's the baptismal prep. You start that relationship. And, you know, from there, people start to come. A big, another big issue besides hospitality or a topic is the understanding of the masks. And it's huge. Many people said, well, we, we, you know, we'd love to have more instruction in the mass about the mass. And same thing holds for the Eucharist. And there are opportunities depending on the readings on any given weekend to, you know, for the priest and the homily to, or deacon to, I'm not saying it's it's a complete catechesis because it's going to tie into many things, but to explain, you know, the Eucharist when we have, you know, the readings on, on the Eucharist, Corpus Christi for that matter. And so people are thirsting for a greater understanding of their faith. And, right. you know, you know, somebody will complain about this homily or this music being poor or the, the logistics of the particular church. But when they know and are, are taught, you know, that the Eucharist is the hierarchy of our faith, we're receiving the body of Christ, which many people don't believe. Well, why don't they believe it? And the, the living word, the gospel and the readings is the living, the Holy Spirit speaking. If for no other reason, if, if everything else is what you consider to be horrible, that's reason enough to be present at the Mass. Right. And well, well everybody's said. looking to be formed. Right. Well said. Well said. And, and we, uh, we talked about this, Stephen, at an earliest podcast about the one, the one, the vision, what's going to animate, please God, the rest of my time until I retire. Um, 
or die, one or the other. The bottom line is, the one is the vision of an evangelized church, at the heart of which is catechesis as a moment in a process that introduces a person to Christ in as many ways as is humanly possible and accompanies that person from encountering him to discipleship, to personal holiness, to sainthood, which is glory. That's the one. That's the vision. And at the heart of that is the Eucharist, to your point. And therefore, starting in September of next year, that is going to be the formation offered to everyone particularly leadership in the church. So the Eucharistic revival is, is a part of this larger revival, which is going to see the church, please God, embrace its essential nature, which is synodal in so much as we are a family that needs to be united in communion with each other in Christ. And then one that is faithful to the deposit that the Lord revealed and that is going to heaven in mission. So ultimately what we're talking about. And if you lose any one of those, then you know communion could be navel gazing, right? Or the truth and proclaiming the truth could be done in an ineffective way. Meaning I tell you the truth, but I'm not interested in telling you the truth in a way that you could understand the truth and embrace the truth. I just wanna say it and it's your tough luck if you don't understand it, not good enough. And then, of course, we're getting to heaven. If after all this, we don't get to heaven, then we had a major problem, <laughs> right? So that's the one. I call it the one. And I presented it to the pastors. When, when the deacons have their convocation, I'm going to give a, a detailed presentation on this because come next year, this is where we're moving. So to your point, the synodal process is going to be raising some of the more um, the elements, I think, that will strengthen the communion of the church so that we can do the other two more effectively in the end, right? So it's, it's an important piece to this. So the synod was expanded, was it not by the Pope? Yes, it was. We still receive additional reports to this day. I have two envelopes that were submitted by youth at uh, St. Rose of Lima and other parishes have still submitted some of their documents that came in over time. So mm -hmm. um, at this point, we've already submitted, you know, our report to the USCCB. However, I will pass on to you, Bishop Frank, additional documents that have come in. Good. Well, I, I, but I mean, on the international level, it was supposed to be a one-year event, correct? But now it's more than that. Yeah, it was extended, I think, because of COVID, which was one of the reasons why maybe our percentage of response you know, nationally and locally was low. We ran it. We ran into difficult times with COVID and the variant in terms of um, parishes trying to set up, you know, sessions live. Uh, you know, we we dovetailed with the church calendar in terms of Christmas of last year and then the COVID. Uh, so the Pope extended it to try to give more of a voice, give people more of an right. opportunity. Right. Yeah, I think, and I think that's certainly true in the United States. COVID made a, a direct impact on a lot of different diocesan participation. Now, what I'm about to say is extremely controversial. Well, maybe not extremely, but it's a bit controversial. And therefore I'm gonna say it. On the global level, global level now, 
So when all of these continental reports come to Rome, if there's true transparency and brutal honesty, there are going to be dynamics that are obvious that have to be spoken to. So for example, the church in Africa is vibrant, growing dramatically. And it's growing at, I mean, at proportions that are astounding to us in the United States. And I am beginning to hear that some of that is being challenged precisely because of the secular material viewpoint that through social media and entertainment is coming from the Western developed worlds to Africa and to other parts of the world. If there's true listening, someone has to say, why is the global church, that is Catholics in this part of the world, allowing that to happen? Okay, rather than strengthening the parts of the church that are growing, and I'm not saying there's individual guilt, but there is an admission that the culture we are creating in the United States is having an adverse effect on other parts of the church that would have been growing even faster. That's true listening. Well, I think a lot of it boils down to, this is one of the major themes is communication. And it involves communication of, you know, pastors and parish councils to their, to their assembly, to their parish. It involves, you know, diocesan communication to the parishes that are, you know, within our diocese. And then it involves messaging from the Vatican. And unfortunately, you know, if people, the average person doesn't read the Fairfield County Catholic or listen to Steve on Veritas Radio, where, where, where are we getting out the messages of, of who we are as Catholics, what we believe, all the social concerns that we're involved in, all the charities that we're involved in? You know, if not that many people are reading, you know, the Connecticut Post these days, but if, if you were to open it up, is there anything there that tells who we are and what we do and what we believe in, you know, in, in some of the major newspapers, there's the Catholic register. There's other papers that are, I think maybe more limited to the people that are really embedded in their faith. But how do we get the message of Christ and, and who we are to the, to the broader population within the United States and, and throughout the world? Because, you know, if you control the media, you control the message. And, and that's a that's a big big challenge. And many people within our diocese expressed their concern about, you know, how are we messaging what we believe? Without a doubt. And my critique goes one step further, in so much as the very form of communication in the culture is the collective product of all of us, because we support it, we finance it, we use it. We direct it, it makes money, and we profit from the stocks we own on that money. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And that culture that's been created, and inadvertently, again, this is not a question I'm personally guilty, you're personally, no. But the, but the synodal process could give us an opportunity on the global scale to take a step back and say, my goodness. So what we're fighting here in the United States to try to bring people to an understanding that my life is all about me, is not the recipe for happiness. It's not the recipe for eternal life. 
is also having a detrimental effect in other parts of the world, right? Do you understand what I mean? And if that sort of listening occurs through this, it could be a moment of tremendous reflection for the world's people. Now, it's important. I have a quick story because my son spent five years in the Peace Corps in Senegal, West Africa. And we took our whole family there. It was a wonderful experience, primarily 95% Muslim. But the people received us with such joy. But one quick story is my son spent hours and hours um, tilling difficult land to create a cooperative garden where they put in wells, planted banana trees near the wells. The water would spill off. And when he was leaving, primarily the women of the village were taking responsibility for their own plots. And before he left, they all sat down and he, he washed their feet and said to them that, listen, I'm doing this for you. When I leave, you have to do this for each other. And I was kind of blown away. You know, I think his Fairfield prep experience had given him a servant's heart. So here he is on the ground in Africa, in a primarily Muslim country, exhibiting, you know, Jesus-like service qualities. Mm-hmm. And if we, go, we go, if we go back to that village, they're, they're like our family, the people that took care of my son. Uh, and, and that speaks to, you know, how, how do we bring the, the true service of Jesus mm-hmm. to third world countries if, if we're not personally there? Right. Actually, uh, to be even a bit more radical, we consider them third world because they don't follow our economic formation. Right. But I wonder right. who's first and who's third in the end. <laughs> right. Well, my, my young daughter, <laughs> when we left... And I said, what do you think? And she said, I like being there better. Really? Her point was just the joy, even in poverty. We'd sit down for a meal and it was a bare bones rice and they would push the food towards us. Right. And the love and the charity and the heart of the people who were poor was something that my daughter thought was better. Well, and you know what? And and if the Synod on Synodality allows those voices to speak to one another across the globe, then you are really, as we said, we're growing up. Now you are cooking with fire. Now you can make real transformational change in the very heart of discipleship, in the conversion of our minds and hearts to the Lord of one another. Now you are really creating leaven for a church on fire on all seven continents, right? And one of the blessings of COVID is the ability to have Zoom type sessions all around the world where you can have Mm -hmm. that relationship grow Mm -hmm. across the uh, ocean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then the Synod, so we will not know what the bishops we'll be discussing in October of 2023 until all the continental reports are done, I would think. So that won't be till like late spring, I would think, right? As far as I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'd be curious to see what document. It'd also be curious to see the the six documents, I think, that are being created because Antarctica doesn't have its own. <laughs> and to be able to, unless the penguins want to be part of it, I suppose. But I mean, so you put the six side by side, it will be very interesting to see what themes are common, what themes are not in the six regions, right? 
it will. It will. I found that listening in on our national uh, discussions, that there was a lot of commonality around the country. A lot of the things that were brought up within our diocese were echoed throughout the country. So it'd be interesting to see mm-hmm. in other parts of the world if mm-hmm. some of those particular mm-hmm. challenges and joys mm-hmm. are exhibited in other mm-hmm. broader continents. You know, what's interesting, I it, it, to complement what you just said, when the bishops come together at the USCCB, I find it fascinating to see how when they speak, when they interact, how the cultures, the religious cultures within the church, I'm not talking ethnic, I'm talking mm-hmm. geographical, it comes across. It is, there is a difference, like the church in the Midwest is different than the church in New England. Clearly, clearly. I'm not exactly sure how to describe the difference, but when you know you intuit, there's a difference like in the South or the Southwest or the Southeast or the Pacific States or, right, or the Plains. It's just different because I guess as a country, we do have differences, even non-religious differences, cultures, if you could call it that. Yeah. And, and so imagine the church, the global church. Imagine the global church, the variety. It's mind-boggling. It is. I know when we were in Africa, my son, we were there for Christmas and he took us for an hour ride on a truck to one small Catholic church that he found. And uh, it was all done in French and all the men on one side, all the women on the other. And I never had a great appreciation for Latin. You know, I wish I did. But when they went to sing the Gloria, they sang it in Latin. And I'm like, I understand. Thank you, Lord, for this little bit of knowledge. So you're right. It's uh, it's fascinating. We certainly have so many regional differences in culture just within our own country. And I like to make a joke about, you know, if you live in, in the metro New York area, you know, you move into a neighborhood, you drive by people for about a couple of years and they don't look at you. And then after two years, you, you wave, you may get a wave. But then after five or 10 years, they'll help you shovel your driveway. And if you have an emergency, they'll be there for you. So mm-hmm. whereas you go down south on vacation, you know, I've been to churches down south on vacation and some of the churches are booming. There's tons and tons of people. So you do have so many regional differences. It's it's, it's a fascinating mm-hmm. fabric of diversity, mm-hmm. you know, within our country and within our faith communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Quite, quite. Well, listen, Deacon Steve, thank you for the tremendous work you did on pulling all of this together. It's not easy. For the people who are listening, it's not easy dealing with 79 different parishes and all the delegates. And sometimes, you know, you'll have individuals who are cooperative, some who are not as cooperative, some who don't return your phone calls. And you have to call them back. And then, I mean, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And I'm very appreciative of everything. Well, thank you. I've met a lot of wonderful people, and it's increased my my faith. Great. There are a lot of differences around the world and around the country, I bet even here within the diocese, mm. a lot of differences among the parishes. So we're going to take one more break, uh, and then we'll be back with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there.
Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Okay, Excellency, here's this week's listener question. Uh-huh. It says, Dear Bishop Frank, my understanding is that the Sabbath is on Saturday, which is why the Jewish people keep that day holy. Correct. Why do we as Catholics keep holy the Sabbath on Sunday instead of Saturday? Great question. Okay, so the Sabbath, seventh day in Genesis, God rested. And that's correct. It's Saturday for our Jewish brothers and sisters. We celebrate the new quote-unquote Sabbath as the day of resurrection, which is the eighth day. Seven on the calendar, and the eighth day is the day of the Lord's resurrection when creation was recreated in him. It is the inbreaking, the first dawning of the kingdom, which will bring all creation into renewal, right? So we celebrate the Lord's day of resurrection as the eighth day, not because it is a day of rest, but because it's the day of recreation, which then demands rest, reflection, prayer, right? Because of the awesomeness of what we're celebrating. And just as an aside, we talked about this, Steve, a long time ago. In the old days, in the old days, baptismal fonts were made with eight sides for that reason. It's the day of, it's the introduction into the day of recreation. Excellent question. Yeah, very good. If you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we would like to thank Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Deacon Steve Hodson, thank you so much for joining us today. Very informative, timely, and important. Thank you. Appreciate it. Steve, thank you for, again for the, for the great work, because it's not finished, because you still have work to do. Thank you. Thank you, Bishop Frank. <laughs> Okay. And Excellency, before we go, would you please give us your blessing? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to share our faith and to discuss those things that you are asking us to do to bring greater life to our community, to the mystical body of your Son. So as we celebrate Thanksgiving Day, give us joyful and grateful hearts for our faith, for our families, for our health, for our country, and for all the blessings you give us each day. And we ask that you bless us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And to all of our listeners. 